Well, good morning. If you would find Revelation 18, Revelation 18, verse 1, and the title is The Fall of Babylon, The Fall of a Great City. Uh, before I get into this, and we'll probably go pretty uh, quickly into the text, I want to share with you um, that uh, as a church, we're going to be praying and believing God for souls during this Easter season. Um, we began praying Wednesday night for our one. So do you have a one? Do you have a one person that you're praying for? Maybe it's more than one that, boy, they're close to your heart. You love them, but they don't know Jesus. Anybody have someone like that? You just want them to know Jesus. You want them to, you just want to say, hey, come to heaven with me. Don't miss out on heaven. Anybody like that, you know who they are. So we're going to be praying and fasting for those people during this time of Easter season. And here's a, t- a chance for you to invite them uh, to come. Uh, I've, I, I'm amazed at the commitments that people have already given me, including yesterday, who uh, would say, I'll, I'll come during the Easter season or to the Easter brunch on Easter Sunday. So we're, we're inviting not just for that one Sunday, but for Easter. So be praying uh, during our Easter season. And by the way, um, there are some of you here today who would like to know more about Hibernia and what we're doing at Easter and what we're doing in general. Uh, at the end of our second service, we have a, a lunch called Foundations. Foundations is where Les and I, uh, we get to talk about the church and introduce the church to you and open the doors and say, here's who we are, here's where we're headed, and here's how you can be a part if you want to pray about that. So if you're a guest today, even for the first time, love to meet you and love to have you at lunch after the second service right in the foyer, okay? Well, let's get in it. Revelation 18, the fall of Babylon you know, when Peter uh, talks about the slow and the kindness of the Lord, the slowness of the Lord concerning his wrath, he said, God is patient towards you. When you read Revelation 18, you see God pouring out his judgment on a group of people, including everyone that lives on the earth, uh, that have not followed him. And you might would say, wow, this is an amazing, wrathful God, but he is patient. He's patient. Anybody ever experienced the patience of God in your life? Aren't you grateful that he's kind and slow to anger towards us? But what we read here in Revelation 18 is another angle from an angel given a revelation to John about the final fall of this world system before the return of Christ. So do you have that? you have that? So if you're just joining us, you can catch up by knowing that what John has revealed here is when the, the last of this world system falls. There's a final cataclysmic judgment, and then Jesus returns. So over the next weeks, we're going to look at what happens during this time. But verse 1, we read how that an angel came with bright glory, and that thing is, I think that is striking because he comes into a dark world. He comes to a dark world, and he makes an announcement, and he does so, and you may not get this here, but as you follow, you're going to see this announcement is one with enthusiasm and excitement. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon is fallen. There's joy in that announcement. Not everyone is joyful. Many will mourn. In fact, most will grieve over the fact that this world has finally collapsed. Some will rejoice. Some will grieve. But this world is going to finally find its judgment. The reasons for this. Look in verses 1 through 8. The reasons for the fall of Babylon is that this world is influenced by a 
a place called Babylon. Babylon the Great in verse 2, a great city, a great city. So what is Babylon? Verse 9, verse 17, verse 19, verse 21 tells us that it is a city. It is a city. Babylon as a city or a power is named more than any other city in all of the Bible. 260 times Babylon is mentioned in the scriptures. Only Jerusalem is mentioned more. So this is a significant city, a significant power. It is a power and an influence that's been around since Genesis 11. And the philosophy of Babylon's been around since Satan entered the garden. It's that ancient. Babylon, in Revelation 18, is a cultural capital. It is a commercial capital. It is where where everyone finds their place in business. We learned in verse, uh, chapter 17, Babylon is a religious capital of, as well. Uh, it is centering its worship around man and man's ability. So Babylon is an influential influential city. It is a city. It is a city, a city that influences the entire globe. We're aware of how that even occurs in our day. For religious, uh, for religious purposes, Jerusalem, Mecca, and Rome might be some of the capitals that influence the world with religion. When it comes to business, it's New York, Beijing. For culture, it's Hollywood, Nashville, Milan, Paris, and of course, Fleming Island. The city and its worship, though, are going to be destroyed. The city and its worship are going to be destroyed. In chapter 17, we see that religion is destroyed. The system of worship is destroyed for the purpose that God had intended to bring about his plan. We read that in chapter 17. God's going to allow the worship of this world to be destroyed. Not true worship, false worship, false worship that worships man as it's centered so that God can reveal his plan, and the pride of Satan, who desires himself to be the center of all attention. The impetus behind this world religion is the influence of the world through an economic system, and we're going to see this. Now, look at the depth of uh, Babylon's sin. This is where we're going to go and see why judgment is so great against Babylon. Verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean, detestable beast. So you have here the measure of the depth of the sin of the final world system. There is a city from which the Antichrist will rule. Most likely uh, at the center of all the continents, Europe and Asia and Africa, And that place will influence the entire globe. It will commerce, the commerce will control uh, the buying and selling in the entire world. But notice the depth of its iniquity. It's full of every demon. It is influenced by Satan. The closer uh, we get to the end of time, the more demonism will be on the rise um, in verse 23 of chapter 18, look at this passage. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your what? Your sorcery. 
So there is a devilish deception that is leading the influence in the world from Babylon, and that will increase in the end times. I think we can look around and say and see that there are already rising demonic activities in our world. Would you agree with that? Whether it's the violence that we see or the spiritism that we see. When Jesus was on the earth, it would have been absolutely um, uh, appropriate to assume that demonism would have been on the rise, because it would have been, and it certainly was. When you read the Gospels, aren't you always taken aback at how many times Jesus is confronting devils and demons and casting them out of people and seeing that fight against him by the devil? That, that time is going to rise again when demons have their way uh, through spiritualism, through naturalism, but in the end, mostly through, as I read in this text, materialism. Have you ever wondered why it is that in the United States of America and the West in general, there's not a great deal of demonism that, it, that shows itself through possession or these types of things we read in the New Testament? Um, uh, people uh, being overcome by the enemy, the devil, and, and then uh, shaking violently, being thrown into fire as one case is in the New Testament. But now in the Western world, we see what we see in Revelation 18, and that is demonism is oftentimes behind the deep materialism of the world. And it shouldn't surprise us. Think about the church and how it got started. Are y'all in the book of Acts and Bible study? Can go go back in your mind a little bit and think about Acts. The, the church gets started. There's a move of the Spirit. Uh, people are coming together. Every day people are getting saved. And immediately the devil jumps in. And every time the church gets moving, what happens is the devil takes note. Where does he move into? He moves into two people, a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. What is their deal? They want to be known for their giving, but they don't give as much as they say they're giving. Why? Because they are materialistic. And then Peter says, this, why has Satan entered to your heart? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You have listened to Satan and he's entered into your heart. Follow that through through the book of Acts. And chapter 8, there's a man by the name of Simon who's a magician. He sees God's power working. And when he sees God's power working, he goes to the apostles and wants to know if he can buy with his money some of the power of God that he's experiencing. That that didn't just happen in Acts, did it? In our world right now, if you paid attention, there are moves of God, it seems to be happening around our world. And when there's a move of God, what happens that's sickening is that there are people who try to get in on that move of God to monetize that. That's what happened in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19, you keep moving, and there are some Jewish exorcists, and they've discovered that through our ministry, we can cast out devils and make money. Uh, they are exposed as frauds in the end, right? What I'm trying to say is that the way the devil has worked is the way he still works. And in America and in the West and particularly, it is materialism that he's got as a hook to keep people from coming to life caught up in everything that I can have and own and buy and experience as opposed to what God has for me. So we see the depth of their sin. We see the width of their sin. Look in verse 3. All the nations have drunk. All the nations have drunk. Like this is not just a problem for Babylon, the city, or that particular area, but the entire globe. 
the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. There it is again. The entire world influenced by her luxury and lust falls into her sin. We see the height of her sin. Look at verse 5. Her sins are heaped up as high as the heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. This verse 5 harkens all the way back again, once more, to Genesis 11, where the world came together, made bricks, and stacked one brick upon another to create a religious system. Literally created a tower out of bricks that represented their religious system. In the same way, look at verse 5 again. Sins in Babylon are being stacked upon each other so that you have this complex system of iniquities. Brick after brick, new levels of sin constantly being added to the foundation of transgression. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean that sin is never stagnant. If we allow a little sin in our life and it's unrepented of, It makes a foundation for greater sins to be stacked upon those sins until you have a superstructure of sin in your life that only, only by God's grace could ever be demolished. Remember Cain? He had sin in his heart, didn't he? He was jealous of his brother. He was angry with God. And what did God say to him? Sin is crouching at your door. That's a word for us. Sin is never stagnant. If we don't deal with the sin in our lives of attitudes, those attitudes can can become actions, and actions can become habits, and habits become a, a character, right? So a thought, reap an action, you know the saying. As you continue, you will reap then a destiny. This is what's going on in Babylon. They are constantly growing more wicked by developing more complex systems of sin. Think about the world we live in right now and what your grandchildren and children are dealing with at school. And we would say, how have we come to this place where we're having to protect our children from such terrible teachings about sexuality and gender? Well, Those teachings have been built on the bricks of the failures of so many in the past to stand up for marriage and for life and for God's plan. And now we have a system that continues to be built up based on man's iniquity. Finally, God says, I'm done. I'm done. He is slow to anger. He is patient calling men to repentance. But there will be a time when he remembers. He hasn't forgotten sin. He hasn't not looked down upon the world, but that it comes to the final straw that breaks the camel's back, as it were, where God says it's over. We see this in the length of their sin. I think this is significant. Would you read with me? As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, did Babylon. So give her the measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she sits as a queen. Or I sit as a queen is what she says. 
This language is, is a little bit challenging for us, but what she's basically saying, Babylon, is that I'm a kingdom. When she says I'm a queen, that is language borrowed from the Hebrews. The queen is a symbol of a kingdom. Every kingdom has a king. And everything Satan has done and will do is a mimic of God's kingdom. Everything that Satan does is a twist of God's creation. So there is a kingdom of this world and the king of this world is Satan. So what she's glorifying herself in is this. We don't need God's kingdom. It is a wholesale rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were here on Wednesday night, you heard me proclaim the truth. Jesus is Lord. He is. He's Lord whether I say it or you believe it. But He's Lord and He's Lord of everyone. And He's Lord of everything. He's the Lord of the devil himself. So much so that one day the devil will bow his knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. You don't have to make Him Lord. You don't even have to accept him as Lord because that doesn't change the fact that he is Lord. He's Lord of you. He's Lord of me. He's Lord of everyone in this world. Lord over the globe. Lord of over those who don't believe in him or those who are atheistic or agnostic, those who are of other religions. He's Lord. He's Lord. He's Lord. And here's a woman. Here's a system. Here's a group of people who say, we have our own kingdom and we have our own king. No wonder. No wonder. Verse 8. The reason for these plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord who judges her. She is full of all types of iniquity. Full of all types of sin. She loves her luxury. She involves herself in commodities. She is the one who then in verse 13 of Revelation 18. Trades in the most valuable of creations human souls. In this last and final kingdom, human beings are a commodity. They're objects to be used. No wonder, no wonder her judgment is so great. When the souls that God created are seen as nothing more than livestock to be bought and sold and slaughtered. That sentiment is so so demonic, isn't it? And it's live and well that sentiment in our world. It is what the porn peddlers do when they objectify women and men. Pushers who profit from drugs and alcohol. People who are using men and women as commodities to meet their materialistic lusts. No wonder the moment of our judgment will come so swift. Look in verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour, mark that, in a single hour your judgment has come. What do you mean, John? What are you being shown, John? What, what do you see, John? I see that, that the wheels of God's justice, they grind slowly, but they are sure. He's patient. 
In Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is the way of the whirlwind and the storm. Nahum said in verse 6, who can stand before this indignation? Who can endure the heat of the anger of God? The rebellion against God? The sin against His law? The rejection of His Son? Will finally come to an end. You know, we have a, a wonderful criminal justice system. I don't know if you've ever been on a, a, a jury before. It's quite an interesting process. And as you watch how our system works, you realize we have, a, again, what we've been taught in civics and growing up, a nation of laws. If you break the laws, there's penalties. And for the most part, I think that we have one of the best and maybe the best in the world. Every once in a while, I'm sure, however, every once in a while, I'm sure, however, that someone is falsely accused of a crime and then actually condemned. Uh, we've all seen the stories. We've read the stories of those who've served prison sentences for a crime they did not commit. I think that's pretty rare. I think the statistics for that's really small. And when that happens, there are criminals that go free. There are criminals that go free because someone else is paying the penalty for them. Or there are times that criminals go free because they escape justice, because they're not caught. They're never ran down. We never know who did the crime. This is our human system. But God's system of judgment is absolutely perfect. And there will be no innocent person that will suffer. And there will be no guilty person that will escape his judgment. This is God's saying to Babylon, I'm coming, I'm coming to once and for all deal with this rebellion. Here's the responses. Look at the responses. And verse um, 9 tells us the kings of this earth who committed sexual immorality with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. So some are very sad. This is the dirge of the merchants. They are singing the only way they know how to sing. Sad songs about Babylon. Hello darkness, my old friend. That's all they can do. Proverbs 25, 20 says, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes a garment off on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. But they have no help. They have no hope. They don't know anything to sing but sad, sad songs because everything that they love is gone. Verse 11, The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. Since no one buys their cargo anymore, you have the different types of merchants that are mourning over her. Verse 19, and they threw dust on their heads and wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, where in a single hour she's been laid to waste. It's remarkable. You know what also is remarkable is that in chapter 17, the previous chapter, when the religious system of the world was destroyed, John didn't tell us anybody mourned for that. When that false religious system was finally devastated, no one mourned. And I think if you link the two chapters together, you realize why. The religious system in chapter 17 that was not about Christ, but about this world, was only for what I can get out of it. So when the system is gone, but the government's still providing what I want, I'm happy. It's just a transfer of worship. No wonder people are going to be very quick 
to begin to worship the Antichrist because he's going to deliver to them what they want. What do they want, Scott? They just want what they want when they want it, how they want it. And that's my flesh. And it wouldn't be for the grace of God, that's where, exactly where I'd be today. But here they are, mourning over this. Reminds me when Jesus was with a group of disciples in John 6, and he's telling them, okay, if you're going to follow me, this is going to cost you something. I mean, he had just fed uh, the crowd. He was very concerned about their physical need, keen about what it was that they uh, needed from heaven, and he would give that to them. But most of the people that were following Jesus saw Jesus just as a free meal ticket. And so Jesus said, uh, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And then he said this, as the Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on the bread of life will live forever. In other words, look, you're coming for physical bread. You're coming for a meal, but that's going to go, that, that's going to go away. It's going to pass. You, you need to feed on me because I am a life. People said, this is what they said. That's a hard saying. Hard saying, not, that's hard to understand. They understood. What they said was hard was, you want us to want you more than bread. That's what it takes to follow Christ. It is, it is after this, John 6, 66, I always thought that was an interesting place to have this verse, John 6, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It is that we're born with a sense of entitlement. We may hate it today, and we're regularly hearing how that so many people feel so entitled. And that's true. If you're on any of the social media apps that deal with neighborhood stuff, Lord help you. We do live in a world that's entitled. We were born feeling entitled. And the worship of chapter 17 fed that that appetite for, I want what I want, what I want, how I want it. That's the way it should be. And if God don't give it to me, I'll find some other God. No wonder so many are willing then to follow the Antichrist. Some are glad of the destruction of Babylon. Some are sad, but some are glad. It might surprise you. Some rejoice over her. Look at verse 20. When everything collapses in the world, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Like there's in heaven rejoicing over this. And there are Christians who are the saints of God. They are rejoicing. The apostles are rejoicing and the prophets why? God says, because they've been against you. This system of the world's not just against my son, against me. How can that be true? I remember when Saul of Tarsus was headed off to persecute Christians and Christ arrested him. And the question was, why, Paul, why, why Saul, are you persecuting me? I, I, I thought Saul was persecuting Christians. But we are the 
body of Christ. We're his ambassadors. We're his representatives. And the reality is when we represent Christ, there are going to be times that people who are angry with God, who are violent against God, take out that anger and violence on us and objectify us. I think John, as he's listening to this, probably could have been thinking about his brother James who was killed by King Agrippa in the early 40s. His friend Peter, who was crucified upside down in the early 60s, and Paul, who was beheaded shortly after that. I'm sure he could be thinking about his own Lord, who went to the cross, and now he knows there's rejoicing over the fact that Satan's kingdom is over. Probably this initiates Armageddon. When the kings of the earth are now devastated and they are desperate for power, they have to march on Jerusalem. In verse 24 of 18, And in her Babylon was found the blood of the prophets who have been slain on the earth. Now, I want you to see the realizations of the fall of Babylon too. Um, Verse 21 tells us, The angel took a mighty stone and a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be no more. And then all of those who were on the earth began to realize that everything they've ever worked for, everything they ever dreamed for, everything that they have ever lusted after and now bought is gone. In one big mushroom cloud, they're watching it. Danny Aiken in his uh, commentary on Revelation said that they are mourning over the no mores. I think about Revelation 21.4. It's one of my favorite passages. Revelation 21.4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be there any more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the former thing to pass away. Do you all look forward to that? Satan's kingdom can be described this way. Evermores. Evermore tears, evermore death, evermore mourning, evermore crying, evermore pain. No more, verse 22, no more rejoicing. The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard no more. No more rebuilding, does Achan say? Look at the next text, verse 22, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard no more. No more reflection, verse 23, the light of the lamp will shine on you no more. No more mercy, no more recovery. The the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. Uh, No more respect for your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. No more redemption. You have the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who've been slain on the earth in you. Well, what do we do about this text? Because every one of us, I think when we read the book of Revelation, look at this and say, this is coming, but I can see what's happening already. This is coming, I can see what's happening already. Do you see that? That A lot of this is happening already. Do you see that? I want to give us some application here because I don't know if we'll be alive when all this goes kind of, you know, well, we won't be here. We'll be in heaven, but I'm trying to say, I don't know if this is going to happen in the lifetime in which we're now living that Maybe 50 years from now, 100 years from now, it could be 1,000 years from now. It's not my personal conviction or belief that it is going to be that long. I think Jesus is coming back soon. I really believe he's coming back soon. But I want to just talk about how to apply this. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Come out of her. Everyone say, Come out. Come out of Babylon. 
Come out of Babylon lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Her sins are heaped up, heaped up sins. So how could they continue to be heaped up like that? One of the reasons that they're heaped up like that is this stench that makes its way up to high heaven is unnoticed by Babylon. I mean, this stench of sin that makes it into the nostrils of God is not, it's not smelled on earth. Like, how is that possible? When I was a kid, I would work on the summer on the farm, and um, I would work on this hog farm. My uncle owned a hog farm and a lot of other things, but it was the largest hog farm in the southeast. The largest hog farm on the south, in the southeast. Pretty impressive, right? No, pretty stinky. Think about that for a moment. So I would roll up, get out of the truck, and about fall over. Because it, you can imagine, smelled. He's like, you'll get used to it. And of course, you're thinking what I'm thinking. You don't want to get used to that. But we do, don't we? We do. We think our dog doesn't stink, but everyone else goes, good night. We can get used to it. Coming out of Babylon means that we become more sensitive to sin and the stench that it brings to a holy God. Coming out of Babylon means I'm coming out recognizing that the, the little sin that I call small and insignificant is big in the sight of God because it opens the door for greater, greater opportunities for compromise. Think about Samson who began to compromise, and then at the end of his life did not realize that the Spirit of God had gone from him. Spiritual repentance is key then for us to come out of Babylon because we live in this stench. We live in this place called Babylon, and it is all over us. And if we're not careful, we're not careful, we can get used to the sin in our own lives. Don't hold on to it. Don't hold on to it. I was reading a book about the sinking of the Lusitania. I was really interested in it in so many ways. But when the Lusitania sank just 11 miles off of Ireland, there were enough lifeboats to save everyone. But a phenomenon took place. While the ship was going down and lifeboats were there to save people, there were those who would not let go of the sinking ship to find rescue in the boats that came for them. Literally, they had to be pried off of the ship to be saved. Can you imagine that? Man, let go. Let let, let go of the boat. It's going down. We live in a sinking ship of a world. Babylon's going down. It is best to listen to John's instruction. Don't hold on. Don't hoard Sin. Don't hoard sin in a closet. When you let go of it and you come out, it is completely. You ever been in someone's place where they have a lot of stuff that they might use one day? But they can't get to the stuff that they... You seen those shows? Man, they bring me anxiety. Do do they you? Some of you are like that right now with your life. You've not truly repented of your sin. You just put it in a closet for a future reference. You bring it up sometimes. You entertain it in your mind. Oh, you would never act on your thoughts, but you enjoy the thought. 
You know why that's so dangerous? Because you're rejecting the Holy Spirit. You're grieving the Spirit of God. Do you know why it is that there are those who will send away their salvation because they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Because the conviction has come, 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 and they have gotten used to the conviction. They're used to the smell of their sin, and they reject the Holy Spirit and accept their iniquity. Believer, you can't lose your salvation, but you sure, you sure can hoard sin, not repent. Coming out of Babylon means to repent of every last bit. Repentance means to let go of the ship and don't stack any sin in the closet. Rejoice over Babylon's destruction. Look at verse... Well, I don't remember which verse it is now. The rejoicing... Uh, verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and the apostles and prophets of God. Can you imagine people rejoicing over the destruction of the earth? But in our day, what does that mean? It means that we are not to envy wicked doers, Proverbs 24, 1 says. Don't desire their company. Proverbs 29, 20 says, do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked, for the evildoer has no hope in the future. I remember years ago we would sing this song, Sing to the King. It's an old hymn brought back into... The, the 21st century, sing to the king who's coming to reign. Glory to Jesus, the lamb that was slain. Life and salvation is empire to bring. Joy to the nations when Jesus is king. Then we would sing this. And every time you hear it sung, and even in our church, there would be applause. There would be shouts after this line. Listen to it. For his returning, we watch and we pray. We will be ready for the dawn of that day. We will join in singing with all the redeemed. Imagine that. Cause Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. All right. When we do that, we're doing exactly what the saints have done in Revelation 11.5. The seventh trumpet is blown. The final judgment has come. And they began to rejoice. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. We're rejoicing over this because it's almost as if you're sitting next to a cancer patient who's a friend of yours and a loved one of yours. And the doctor walks in and says, i got to tell you. After all the treatments, after all the suffering, after all the sickness, all the hair loss, all the loss of appetite, you're in remission. Cancer, the enemy, not your problem now. Or at the end of a battle or a war, and we've seen it in recent days where villages in the Middle East have been liberated by our forces, or go all the way back to World War II in the end, where there's dancing in the streets because we've won, and the enemy has been vanquished. That, that's the rejoicing. These aren't Christians feeling vindicated and wanting revenge on the world. It is that we have now A chance to rejoice that our Lord is king and Satan is where he needs to be. We're going to celebrate that now. Uh, How do we celebrate that now? I, I thought of a lot of ways, but let me just give you one. Jesus said to a group of people, I tell you, check this out, I, I tell you, in the same way, talking about rejoicing, 
There will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Did y'all hear that? Hey, Daniel, how children's church to go today? Pastor, it was great. We had a little 11-year-old that repented of his sin and came to Jesus. Do you know what that does in heaven, y'all? That creates a commotion in heaven, y'all. Because the man, the boy, the girl, the teenager that had their heart full of this world has rejected it and the kingdom of God has come to their heart. We rejoice because of what God does when his kingdom comes to every individual. That's why we have to do. We have to come out of this world. We have to call others out of Babylon's dominion. We have to call others out of Babylon's dominion. There are so many in our world who do not know they're in Babylon's dominion and its deceptions, and we have to call them out. Yesterday, we had a funeral for a dear lady by the name of Janet Hayes, a member of Westside Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Her daughter is a member of our church here. Janet went to be with the Lord. I get to hear her story about every month, and Leslie does too when we're at Foundations, because um, Janet Hayes worked with a man by the name of Tom Platt in our church, and Janet Hayes invited Tom Platt to church at Westside. Tom went to church at Westside. Most of you know this story. While he was there, he heard someone talking about starting churches. He said, we ought to start a church in Eagle Harbor, Fleming Island area, somewhere around here, and that's exactly what happened, and here we are today. Because of the invite of one person. Sometimes I, I wonder if we recognize how, how much of an influence we are on people. And can be for the kingdom's sake. By calling people out of the, this world. Sometimes it's a simple invitation to church. It's an invitation to Christ is ultimately what we're doing. And wanting to continue to do. We're a church who loves Jesus. We want others to know him. And we're constantly inviting people to Christ We have to call our kids out of this culture. They are conditioned by this culture. They're conditioned by every conversation that they're having, every television show they're watching, every video that's coming across their eyes, the music, the curriculum they're being taught in school. They don't even know they're wet because they're fish in water. We have to call our kids out of this culture. We can't just go on like we've done in the past, Christians, sending our kids to institutions, thinking that they're going to be okay so long as we drop them off at church. We live in Babylon, y'all. We have to help our kids. We have to make sure they're converted. We make sure they're convicted by the truth, the authority of God's word, and that they're constrained by the love of God, not legalism. We have to call to heaven for Jesus to come soon. I believe Jesus is coming soon. I really do. And we're told in Revelation 22-7 that The bride, that's the church, that's us. The Holy Spirit is praying, come, 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 Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. He answers that. I think things are headed that way. We see the world the way it is, and we wonder, is this the day that Jesus comes back? But at the same time, so many of you have asked this over the last couple of weeks, in fact, over the last few months, could there be another awakening? Could God move? Could God save and usher Lots of people in heaven. That's why we have to call to heaven for others to come to him. We live in a messed up world. But we, in this messed up world, have 
the incredible cure to the mess. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love it now that it seems that there are those who are saying, we need to get desperate again for God to move. We're dependent on God, not methods, not strategies, hey, not programs, not smoke and mirrors. We are desperate for God to move and dependent on Him to move. And if God moves, then Katie, bar the door. There are going to be people ushered into the kingdom. And our dedication has to be what it's always been to. And that is to the gospel, the eternal gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be desperate for God to move and call for God to move. And believe that it is the gospel that will win the day. So I want to encourage you in these days to come. As we pray together as a church. That you take those prayers and those times and those calls seriously. Because heaven can do what earth can't stop. Let's call on heaven to save our friends and our family members. This community that we live in. And let's call on God to do that. And let's come out of this Babylon so that there are those who can see us as light and testimony in this sinking world. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to look at this text and God, what is to come and help us to be prepared, Lord, in these days that we live in these dark days of sin to be your light and calling people into the hope of Christ. In Jesus' name.